Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 432 of the Survival Podcast. It is Tuesday, May the 12th, 2010, and we're going to do another listener feedback show today uh, for two reasons. One, they're a bit easier for me to do. They require a little bit less research, and uh, they allow me to bounce around. And I'm still tired from my uh, my vacation. My vacation wore me out. And two, and more practically, because I have this backlog, and I started going through it, and I was like, oh, my God, I have so many questions that were good enough to go into the questions folder and have never been answered. So I need to start working down that backlog. So maybe I'll do two of these a week for a few weeks to, to chisel down that backlog. Because if you guys are asking the questions, I figure you want the answers. And you take the time to write in to me and, and, uh, and do as I ask. You write me a simple question and not a book or a simple question and then give me a book if I'm interested. I should try to answer every single question that I can as long as it's not one I've already answered like six times. Um, so I'm going to do that again today. Hopefully it'll be a good show. I got good stuff today. I, I promised to do some things a bit differently today than yesterday, and I'm doing that to a degree. I have I have a ton of questions coming in about silver, buying silver. So I'm going to answer some on that today. I've got some on real estate. So I've got some on bug out locations today. I've got stuff on walking away from mortgages. We'll revisit that topic one more time to make sure that I'm understood and I'm not beating up people that I think are doing the best that they can, but I'm also not uh, patting people on the back who are just basically uh, taking their name and running it into the dirt and showing that they have no honor. There's a balance point on how to do that. So we'll talk about those and some other interesting subjects today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping and knock out uh, first segment, our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Really cool stuff. It's the tactical stuff that you guys are looking for. Really great service from the owner. If anything ever goes wrong, you know they're going to make it right. Everything you could possibly want from Magpal magazines to things like uh, Maxpedition bags. So check out Sawtooth Tactical. When you do, make sure you go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banner and you can register once a month to win a free prize on the page that you'll land on. So make sure you're doing that. Uh, next up today is ready-made resources. Hey, what can you say about ready-made resources? It delivers what it promises. Ready-made resources for your prepping and your long-term survival needs. Everything you could possibly be looking for uh, in that realm from solar and a 12-volt product. Uh, their solar catalog alone is amazing. Definitely worth uh, sending to your electronic reader or printing it out or just having it on your computer. Uh, it's like a, even though it's a, it's a sales tool, it's also got so many uh, pieces of information and specification. You can actually figure out how to install solar and wind just from their catalog. And, and a lot of other great stuff, long-term storage food. They've got new gardening products. It's just awesome. So check out ready-made resources. Uh, next up. We also have our own little gear shop, folks. We want you to check that out. Shirts and hats and patches and a bunch of other cool stuff. I'm hoping by Friday I'm going to have the prototype for a new product that I'm going to be able to do a YouTube video of and get it up for you by Friday. I don't know if that will happen. Uh, Sis Wolf's going to pick the prototype up uh, and send it to me today. So it's got to get here. i got to make the video. i got to edit it. i got to upload it. We have something freaking 
kick butt cool coming to the gear shop. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. 20 videos by me, four members only. Over $100 worth of free ebooks. Discounts from over 20 vendors that range anywhere from 5 to 25 to even one vendor who does a 50% discount on ebooks. It is awesome. It is a great return of investment. $50 a year or $5 a month, your choice. And that comes out to about 20 cents an episode. So after you listen to the show today, if you think, hey man, that was worth 20 cents, consider joining the MSB, you'll support the show, and you'll get a return of investment. When I originally put the MSB together, real quick today, I guess a long time since I guess I said this, it wasn't really a lot of stuff in there. There were a few videos and a few discounts. And it was kind of like, you know, 50 bucks worth for 50 bucks. It was, it was okay. And it was really designed to be a way to support the show and a way for me to make the show profitable. And as it grew, um, my feeling was I never wanted charity. I, I was offered a lot of donations in the early days. Hey, man, can I send you 50 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever just to, just to help out? And I never wanted that. I wanted to earn your trust, and if I was going to take your money, I wanted to earn your money. And I, that, what that means to me is if you give me $50 a year, I better damn well give you back at least 100 and my goal was to make it that I was giving you back 500 And I think that if you take advantage of what's there right now, it's worth more than 500 My goal this year is to turn that into $1,000 of value. Uh, and it's tough to do that, but I'm working on it, and we're getting there. So my belief is that I want a minimum tenfold return from you, and I already have that for you right now. And, and that's what Members Brigade is all about. It's not just a donation to the show. If you want it to be that, it can be that. If you don't want to take advantage of what's uh, what's offered, that's fine. But if you're buying stuff for your prepping needs, your gardening needs, uh, things like that, the return is there if you'll go just take it. All right. With that, let's go ahead and move on to uh, to the, the main topics of today's show and the main questions from you guys today. As I said in the intro segment, I have a lot of questions coming in about silver. And uh, I'm going to read this one. It's pretty all over the place, but it'll make it easier to understand my answer if I just read the original question. So here we go. Uh, hello, first off, we love the show and listen daily. We have question regarding the purchase of silver. We've begun purchasing silver American Eagles and was listening to an old show uh, of yours as a reference. You mentioned you could sell 30 ounces a year without following a 1099. Our question is, can we claim money we spend on silver as an investment. If we have to claim the sale of silver, how does the purchase of silver work concerning tax law? We would greatly appreciate any information you can give us. We have put into practice a lot of the advice you offer. Keep informing people of this uh, of, the, of this country to be smart, and God bless you and your family. This comes from folks we'll call Kevin and Valerie. Uh, well, Kevin, Valerie, and everybody else, this is... Um, one of those times where I have to make a correction where maybe I didn't give you as much value out of the answer that I gave you. I told you in the past, and I've said it several times, that you can sell up to 30 ounces of silver without a 1099. I am now under the impression that you can sell more than that without a 1099 as long as they're silver American Eagles. I'm not sure who to believe on this. The person that gave me the 30-ounce figure is an investor that does a lot of YouTube videos. I can't remember his name. I can't find that YouTube video right now. I'll see if I can later and append it to the show notes. But he's the one that stated it was 30 ounces. This guy seems spot on. He seems like he knows what he was what he's doing. Um, but I made a phone call today. I called a local coin shop here. I said I have some silver American Eagles to sell. 
uh, would you like to buy them? And the guy asked me for dates, and I said, they're all recent dates. They're, you know, 08s, 09s, 2010s. I've got 40 of them. I just want to sell them. Are you interested in buying them? He said, of course. I said, well, what can I get for them today? And he said, oh, the spot price is 21-something. I'm paying right now. Uh, it was like 1960 or 1970 a coin or something like that. I said, great, I have 40 of them. Am I going to have to do a 1098? He said, no, that's your business. So there was more than 30, and the guy at the coin shop didn't care to, to do a 1099. Is that the same everywhere? I don't know. I'm up in the air at this. The, the, the solid information I had was up to at least 30 ounces of silver American eagles you could sell without a 1099. There's certain forms of, cur of coinage and, uh, and bars of both silver and gold that can be done without a 1099. I'll put, post an article today about both of those for you so you can le read them and learn more in depth about it. But we know it's at least up to 30 ounces without a 1099. Let's look at the other side of this question now. Can we claim the money we spend on silver as an investment? What good would that do you to claim it as an investment? When you invest money, you don't get a tax deduction unless you're investing in a conventional IRA. So if we invest in a conventional IRA, every penny we put into the IRA is tax deductible. Okay, That damn well means that, uh, that we're going to uh, pay tax on it when we pull the money out. right? And if you put silver into an IRA, there becomes a record of it. You'll hold it in your IRA, and at some point you'll dump it, right, as you withdraw your money in your old age, and then you'll pay tax on the gains. And if you put it into a conventional IRA, you absolutely will pay tax on the gains. Okay. So the other way you could make silver as an investment that would have some kind of a tax associated with it, where you might want to cause this to happen, would be a Roth IRA. You could take a Roth IRA, buy your silver, Put it in there. Now, a record of the purchase goes down, but you don't pay a tax on that other than sales tax if your state has sales tax on silver, and most states with sales tax do have sales tax on silver. So you're going to pay the sales tax anyway if you're buying it in-state, right? There has to be certain types of, of uh, metal that can go into IRAs. Silver American Eagles do qualify for that. Then that coinage could grow tax-free until your retirement age. If it's a Roth IRA, you could sell it. So I don't really see the advantage in any way, shape, or form of claiming the money spent as an investment it, it, because it's silver. It has nothing to do with it. It's the, it's the class of the investment. So if you're buying paper silver, for instance, uh, options on it, or um, if you're buying uh, stock in a mining company, a, a, a metals IRA, then those types of investments are subject to the tax laws of those vehicles. If you take physical metal and you put it into a different vehicle, again, silver eagles into an IRA, then they're subject to the tax consequences of that vehicle. Left into itself, the beauty of silver is it's anonymous. Right? When you buy silver, especially in small quantities, or you buy gold in small quantities, it's anonymous. Especially it's the, the, the Swiss bars, the American Eagle gold coins, and things like that as well. Are also, you know, there's no 1099 there. Either side. It's a private transaction. It's currency for money. Right? It's an exchange. Right? It's like going to England and buying pound sterlings. Right? It's like going to Europe and exchanging dollars for euros. It's an exchange. Gold and silver are money. They're the only real money in the world. So you're saving trading fiat currency for so there's no 
right? Unless it's a product that's subject as an investment vehicle. A lot of generic rounds and bars and things are subject to this, but a lot of other things have this loophole. Now, what are you supposed to do when you sell it? You're supposed to, on your honor, create your own 1099 and say, this is what I paid, this is what I sold, this is my differential, this is my profit, declare your profit and pay tax on it. It's up to you what you do, though, because it's synonymous. I can't say to do one thing or another. I can tell you I personally do everything that the law requires of me. Specifically, I have to because, obviously, I would be a target. Um, but for the average individual that walks into a coin shop and buys 20 Silver Eagles one day and the price goes up for some reason, he walks back to another coin shop and sells them, it's a private transaction. It's up to you what you do with that information. So that's about the best I can do on that uh on that question for you. And I have another silver question before we move on to something else. Uh, and he, this one comes from a guy named Ron. Here's what Ron says. Ron says, I've been trying to get my wife into the idea of buying some silver, but she is reluctant. Her thought is that if all hell breaks loose because no one knows anything about precious metals, the banks won't give you cash for your silver eagles and grocery stores will not either. I guess her point of view is none of it will matter. My question is this. I would like to buy some junk silver and silver eagles but if it does come apart with the current system, will silver still work? Okay. Here's the, here's the typical thing that happens when uh, a wife and a, and a husband are arguing about a deep subject like this, and both of them have limited knowledge. You're both right. And, and neither one probably uh, wants to see where the other one's right. Let's start off with where your wife's right, because we know the wife is always right on some level in an argument. That's why we have wives to help us stay in bounds as, as men, because we're kind of nuts, and they have a little more grounding than we generally do. So your wife is right that if all hell breaks loose tomorrow, and we have martial law in the streets, and people are panicking and freaked out, and, and money is devalued, and, and, and things like that, initially silver probably won't buy you much probably won't buy you much. depends on who you're talking to. First of all, to say that no one knows anything about precious metals is, is, is totally wrong. I know about precious metals. The 10, 12,000 people a day that listen to this show know about it. Uh, people all over America know about precious metals. There is no one in this, on this planet that if you walked up to them right now, or in this country anyway, that's remotely educated with a five-ounce silver bar and said, do you want this, that would say, no, nah, I don't want that. So people do know. But our point is valid because when I'm hungry, silver is the promise of potential food, not food. So initially in a breakdown, the first thing that becomes uh, evident is direct barter. I have aspirin, you have a headache, and you have a bag of beef jerky. Right? That's the first thing that happens, direct exchange. I will only trade something I want or something I have for something I want directly. Uh, there's, there's no, because right at that point, that first breakdown, there's no semblance of commerce. But what happens eventually in a total societal breakdown where the currency is destroyed, and that's one of the reasons that you would hold silver and gold, is because of the eventual uh, revaluation of the currency. As society hits bottom, hits the floor, and begins to rebuild, and people start to come up with new ways to take part in society and change who they are and what they are, because a computer programmer can't really do a lot of programming if we don't have an electrical grid anymore, right? Okay? And that's just one example. It could go a million different myriad of ways. But whether it's a violent breakdown 
or just an economic collapse the way that the Weimar Republic in Germany was, eventually the currency has to be revalued. So if you're holding dollars, and the currency is revalued to, let's put our conspiracy hat on for a moment, the Amero, and uh, you take your dollars to buy Ameros, they'll probably give you some crap exchange rate like, I don't know, uh, 20 to 1. For every $20, you'll get one Amero, or for every $10, you'll get one Amero. Because they'll say what the dollar is worth, and they'll say what the Amero is worth, and you're locked into that. Silver and gold float on the global economy. And if one Amero is, is only worth, you know, if, 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 uh, if, one, uh, if, if let's say one British pound sterling during a U.S. collapse that didn't take down Britain with it was worth 200 Ameros. Well, you now have a choice with your silver and gold to purchase Ameros in large quantity or British pound sterling or any other currency in the world, including if you leave this country and go somewhere else and take those metals with you, they're convertible to currency anywhere. It's for the bank not giving you cash. No, you go to a metal exchange, right, which there's millions of out there, and even if our economy collapses, you go to another nation, you can find a place where you can exchange metal for local currency. If you can buy metal, you can sell metal. There's always been a market for it. So that's the full other side of the spectrum. So you've got the initial breakdown and the rebuilding stage. You also have the middle, and to me this is where small values of silver, small denominations of silver, one ounce, half ounce, quarter ounce, tenth ounce, up to five ounce bars and everything in between have the most value where society does this for itself eventually you come see me and you say hey Jack uh, we've traded before I need some uh, flour and I go I got flour but not enough to give you right now I just I, I'm stockpiling that and uh, I can't do it what do you got though and you say I've got some honey from uh, my beehives and uh, I was looking at maybe trading uh, a pound of honey for uh, 20 pounds of flour and I said, I can't do the flower right now. We're, we're kind of low. It's been long and hard. So you say to me, well, would you buy it with something else that I can go get flower with? And that's where silver becomes the exchange. It is, it is in the rebuilding stage, in the violent, total shit hit the fan. But let's not forget the way Weimar worked. Right? And where a lot of economies have fallen apart, it hasn't been complete violence. There's been some riots, and it always gets hyped up and whatever, but that's the, the minor thing. What happens is all of a sudden, all the people in that country, do you know what they start doing? Do you know what the Russians did? As soon as the ruble started collapsing, they bought gold, silver, and U.S. dollars. And as soon as they would get paid, they would convert it immediately because it was losing value day after day after day. Because eventually that currency has to revalue and when it revalues the opportunities there. So there's a million reasons to own precious metals, but that just gave you three scenarios, and they're all the three scenarios that end up with the economy collapsing. And then the last scenario is this, and this is what you can tell your wife to be the most logical. In 1964, one silver quarter bought a gallon of gas. In 2010, one silver quarter will still buy you a gallon of gas. You can take your happy ass down to the coin shop right now with a silver quarter, pre-64 U.S. junk silver coin, and they will buy it from you for its junk silver value, and it will give you just about enough money to buy a gallon of gas, just like it did in 1964. So it's a hedge against inflation. So when nothing goes wrong, it preserves the value of your money with the potential for upside. 
And if everything goes wrong, there are a myriad of scenarios where you might not use it immediately, but sooner or later it has that store of value that allows you to begin to participate in a new, reshaped emerging economy. Let's go on to something different before this becomes a silver uh, show in of itself. Okay, this next one comes to us from a listener uh, that we'll just call Lillian. I don't really know how to pronounce his name. Um, but it says... Uh, Lillian, L-I-A-N. Anyway, I was wondering what your opinion on this startling bit of information is. It appears that major Fortune 500 companies are seriously considering dumping health insurance and paying the fine because it costs far less for the company to pay a fine, meaning that we as employees have to fend for ourselves and will likely not uh, not see no increase in wages to compensate. Uh, I think what he means there is, you know, they'll cut our health benefits, but they won't give us a raise in pay. And He's probably right about that and wrong about that. Eventually, they will raise uh, pay rates because they'll have to compete with other employers um, if the economy indeed goes through the false recovery I've been predicting. So when the money gets freed up uh, from paying one expense, it's used for another. So I don't know if we'll see every bit of it as an increase, but you might see wages go up because of this. Uh, but it's not a good thing. Let me read from this article out of uh, Money. Uh, this is from CNN Money, and the original source is Fortune Magazine. Now, as I do read this, I want you to listen for two words when I get into this certain part of this article. And they're words that I've said over and over again. I've been told I'm overly pessimistic about government. I won't admit the government does anything right. And those words are unintended consequences. So let's listen for those. As uh, we read together, I'll read, you listen. Documents reveal AT&T, Verizon, others thought about dropping employer-sponsored benefits. Fortune Magazine, the great mystery surrounding the historic health care bill is how corporations that provide coverage for most Americans, coverage that they know and prize, will react to the new law's radically different regime of subsidies, penalties, and taxes. Now we're getting a remarkable inside look at the options AT&T, Deere, and other big companies are weighing to deal with the new legislation. Internal documents recently reviewed by Fortune, originally requested by Congress, show that what the bill's critics predicted and what its champions dreaded, many large companies are examining a course that was heretofore unthinkable, dumping the health care coverage they provide to their workers in exchange for paying penalty fees to the government. That would dismantle the employer-based system that has been that has reigned since World War II. It would uh, let's see. It would also seem to contradict President Obama's statements that Americans who like their current plans could keep them because you can't keep it if your employer drops it. And as we'll see, it would hugely magnify the projected costs for the bill, which controls deficits only by assuming that America's employers would remain the backbone of the nation's health care system. Hence. Healthcare reform risks become a victim of unintended consequences. Amazingly, the corporate documents that prove this beca point became public because of a different set of unintended consequences. They, they told a story far different from the ones politicians who demanded them expected. Congress would lie to us? Really? Really would Congress lie to us? Let's see. Let's see if our congressmen and our senators would lie to us. Here we go. In the days after President Obama signed the bill on March 24th, a number of companies announced big write-downs due to some fiscal changes it ushered in. So in other words, some big companies wrote down some costs and said, we're going to pay less taxes. All right, So the government doesn't like this. So what did they do? 
The legislation eliminated the company's right to deduct the federal retiree drug benefit subsidy from their corporate taxes. That reduced projected revenue. As a result, AT&T and Verizon took well-publicized charges of around $1 billion. So they said, yeah, you know those taxes we estimated we were going to pay you? Uh, we're going to pay about a billion less in taxes. This will get the government's attention, folks. If they were expecting a billion dollars and you tell them the billion dollars ain't coming, they're going to ask questions. So, the back to the article, the announcements greatly annoyed Representative Henry Waxman, who accused the company of using the big numbers to exaggerate the health care reform's burden of employees. Waxman, chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, demanded that they turn over their confidential memos. We want to see. We are doing the people's business, right? And summon their top executives for hearing. We're going to bring your top executives in here and grill them, just like we did those evil oil company ex executives, just like we did Goldman Sachs. We will point our fingers at you and tell the American people, you did this, not us. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it didn't work out well. Back to the article. But Waxman didn't simply request documents that are related to the write-down issue. He wanted every document. This guy might have been an IRS agent. And the companies created uh, the, the companies created to discuss what the bill would do to their most uncontrolled expense, health care costs. The request yielded 1,100 pages of documents. Hold on. I want to know who in our Congress or Senate reads 1,100 pages of documents. Isn't, it, isn't that about how big the health care bill when it was started out and nobody read it but they all voted on it? Uh, from four major employers, AT&T, Verizon, Caterpillar, and Deer. I guess they put Cat in there so it wouldn't look like they were, uh, you know, beating me because they obviously he was friendly to Obama's bailout, so he was like a token in there, right? But no sooner did the Democrats on the Energy Committee read them uh, than they abruptly canceled the hearings. So they got the documents, they're going to bring them in there, they're going to yell at them, and they went, uh, yeah, um... Uh, canceled. It's all okay. Everybody go home. On April 14th, the committee's major staff had issued a memo stating the write-downs were, quote, proper and in accordance with SEC rules, unquote. The committee also stated the memos took a generally sunny view of the new legislation. This is where they tell you the truth and lie to you at the same time. I want you to listen carefully to this. The document said the Democrats' memo showed that the overall impact on health reform on large employers could be beneficial, yeah, to the employers. Nowhere in the five-page report did the majority staff mention that not one, but all four companies were weighing the costs and benefits of dropping their coverage. So I won't read any more. The article's quite a bit longer than that. It's up to you if you want to read the rest of it. But basically, each of these companies looked at Cadillac taxes on their, their, their plans. So basically the new health care bill says that if you get like a, a, a really great health insurance plan, there's going to be a tax on it. So the companies looked at the tax, they looked at the cost, and the government said if you don't do this anymore, if you don't provide insurance, we're going to fine you, and then your employees fall into this other group, this group where we know we give them a tax break and uh, they can buy insurance from a general pool, so they're not left without it. So the government threw up a safety net and made it cost less for employers to throw their employees into that safety net. And guess what the employers said? Hey, maybe we should throw our employees into that safety net. Shocking, I know. The big thing here, though, this is not about bash Obama. This is not even about bash Obamacare. This is bash government. Folks, unintended consequences. And lies. Lies! 
The government who says they're out looking, this is what I tell you when you hear this, all this like great campaign speech crap where these guys are like, you're going to find out this and we're going to find, and I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat. They made a big, they were going to get these guys, just like they did with all these other executives, they were going to drag them in front of there. They would have been on C-SPAN for a day, yelling at them, accusing them of this, accusing, you know, just nailing them. Then they asked for the documents and they went, well, if we do this, it's going to get really public what these documents say. And I don't want to bring the, uh, you know, one of the chief executives from AT&T up in front of, of Congress and stick my finger in his face and ask him, why are you considering dropping health care coverage? I don't want the answer to play on every major news network. Well, because this new health care bill makes it more profitable for us to drop health care coverage than to retain it. So what we thought was, since our main duty is to our shareholders to return a profit, and since you set up such a great program, and we think it's a great program, we think, Congress, you've done a great job with this, because that's what I would say if they put me in that position, even though I don't think so. We think that it's just as good. It helps everybody get insurance, just like you promised. And because of that, we're going to go ahead and pay the fine that you're asking for, because it's more profitable for us to do so. You're the ones that made the fine so low. You're the ones that said this wouldn't affect people. Well, it's affecting people because you have made it into a way where financially we don't have another option. And then this is where we go back to the world of Jack's opinion versus stuff out of an article. What did I say would happen when this thing passed? What did I say would happen before it passed? I said it would pass, and then eventually here's what would happen. Healthcare insurance providers would jack up rates. Very limited controls exist. And eventually employers would just go, I can't afford it anymore. And the employers would start dropping coverage and it would push more and more people into the system. The people would be paying their own insurance and even with the government help would not be able to afford insurance. And it would create more uninsured people who would also pay a penalty for not buying insurance and eventually the people would scream onto the government, oh, great government, please give on to us the public option. Because there, this does not work, that the sheeple would turn. That 40% of the people never wanted this, 40% of the people absolutely wanted this, and 20% of the people were on the side opposing it, and they were overruled by a government that knew they were the mushy middle. And that once the mushy middle has to suffer the consequences of this legislation, they'll beg for more. That's what's coming, folks. The, the, the health care bill that passed might as well have had the public option in it because there shall be one soon. And it will be the death of private insurance. That's what this means. If you want to read it for yourself, I'll post the link in today's show notes. A little bit more political than I wanted to go today, but it was one of those things that, look... I want you to get out of this not so much how bad the health care legislation is, how your government lies to you. I want you to understand that. I don't want you to trust these people anymore. Because they were going to get to the truth, and as soon as they saw that the truth didn't match what they wanted, as soon as they found that the truth wasn't beneficial, they tried to bury it. But since they requested the documents, it was too late. And kudos to Fortune for going in, and reviewing the 1,100 pages of documents. It's awesome. We need more people doing that. Let's go on to another question. Let's get out of politics. Let's do something totally different and uh, kind of maybe a little bit fun. Here's what this guy says. This is from Joey. Joey says, what country would you choose if you're going to leave the U.S.? I know you've said that you would stay and fight until the end, and that's fine by me. Let's say that the reason is you simply want to experience something else. What would Jack's number two and three choices be? Well, 
I almost feel like I'm coughing out because I've been to both of these countries and lived in one for almost two years and uh, occasionally would take, you know, drive up vacations to the other. And they're Panama and Costa Rica. Uh, but let me give you, you my reasoning for this. Number one, if I leave the United States of America, my rights as a firearms owner are screwed anyway. So as long as I can, you know, through some sort system or another, own at least a shotgun, that's about as far as I'm taking that one because it's over anyway. This is the last real bastion of firearms freedom other than nations where everybody has a gun and everybody's trying to kill somebody over a bag of rice like, you know, some of the, the places in the, in the Horn of Africa where I'm not going, right? So I could go there and I guess I could get an AK uh, and run around and be a guerrilla fighter, but I'm going to kind of stick out because I'm blonde and blue-eyed. You know, it doesn't work real well for me. So I'm not going to one of those places, so i got to let that go. And that's a big reason that I won't leave. Because I believe in the natural right to self-defense, and the Second Amendment of the Constitution is the one place in the world where that is still recognized to a large degree. So i got to let that go. So now I have to say, since I can't look at political freedom so much and, and individual freedom so much, I have to look at day-to-day living freedom. Where will people leave me the hell alone, not bother me, not overtax me, Give me some kind of incentive to come there, especially I'm getting closer to retirement age as we go. Um, so I, I look at that. I also look at where are countries that still have land that's affordable, away from the cities where I can live out in the middle of the country the way I want to live. So that takes out a crap load of, of European uh, cities, even Australia, because I'm not really fond of the outback. Uh, for living, for visiting, wonderful to live out there, pretty harsh conditions for a guy who likes to grow food. So it really leaves me with the tropics. So when I look at the tropics, I say, what are the countries that are small enough and autonomous enough to be left alone? And of the, t- and the two that pop to my mind that are very friendly to Americans going there and staying there are Panama and Costa Rica. I like Peru as well. Peru and Ecuador have, have, um, have some nice things that are available. Ecuador especially. Ecuador is not known as being the greatest place in the world to be, but if you get yourself a little place out in the middle of nowhere in Ecuador, no one really gives a damn what you do. Same thing, though, for Panama and Costa Rica. And Costa Rica, a little bit more than Panama. Panama, because of the canal, has a lot of international influence that comes in, uh, in a positive way and also is a negative way. Because the, the Panama Canal has tremendous value the Chinese have come in there with a lot of money since we gave the canal back to the Panamanian people. Um, and I wouldn't want to live anywhere near Panama City. So Panama, I'd want to look for land somewhere in the Cerro Azul Mountains, which are to the south of the canal, going down toward uh, uh, Colombia, but not, uh, not really that far away from Panama City. We're talking an hour's drive. And those mountains, uh, you can buy land for next to nothing still today, as long as you get away from the developments. Uh, you'd have to live off-grid. That's the way I would choose to live so that everybody kind of left me alone. And the people there were extremely friendly. Costa Rica, I would look at moving more into the uh, southern part of Costa Rica, up near Cherokee Province. Uh, Cherokee Province is the northern part of Panama. And you go into uh, Costa Rica from there. And there's a lot of jungle there. And I, I like that type of living. I would go to the tropics because as a permaculturist, it's a nirvana. It really is. It's a place where I can grow food year-round. And uh, grow enough food with a few acres of land that if somebody around me wanted some, I could just give it to them. And uh, so that's where I would go. And I would go live that jungle, uh, mountain lifestyle. 
I wouldn't look for land on the, I would try to recreate, you know, somebody else's retirement dream of living on the beach and an expensive house and things like that because that makes you a target. And if the United States is bad enough you ever had to leave, trust me, all of these other nations are going to be in bad shape too. When we go down, at least for the next 20 years, it pulls the rest of the world down a large degree with them. 20 years from now, that dynamic may change, and that's when I see America left alone. Where everybody just divests themselves the most. They can't do it yet. They're still too tied in. But if I had to go today, if it was a matter of uh, be incarcerated or go to another country, and I could legally leave and do it, I could make it happen, if it was like, it's the only way that you're going to have any kind of quality of life left. If somebody's going to take all my stuff, seize it, and everything else I acquired from there forward would be seized, and I had to go underground or leave, and if I was somehow forced to leave, those are the two nations I would be most likely to go to, and hopefully I could get a satellite internet connection and keep annoying people uh, from abroad. But those are two nations that, uh, that you want to check out if you're looking for someplace to go. Both are very friendly to American expatriates, and I find them both more stable than Mexico, uh, especially now. Uh, Nicaragua actually has a lot going for it as well, except I worry about stability there. Things have calmed down over the last 15 years, even 20 years, but I still see a lot of instability potential in Nicaragua. Belize is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Lots of people speak English. It uh, doesn't have a lot of the problems that Mexico does. So that whole Latin American area and northern uh, South America, if you get away from the cities and uh, you get away from places where there's potential for rioting and things like that, where you can live off the land and get that great tropic agriculture going uh, and grow perennial crops and uh, fish farm and things like that. If I was going to go be a survivalist in another nation, those are the ones that top the bill. Uh, a lot of the other tropical nations, again, are in Africa with a lot of political instability, or they're over in Asia with a lot of uh, totalitarian regime. And uh, so that's why I look at that. New, New Zealand? If it was held together, I don't have the tropics, but New Zealand has a hell of a lot going for it as well. There's parts of Australia that are really nice, but they're generally the more populated parts, and I don't like how high population centers. So there you go, best I can do with that one. Uh, but yeah, again, Panama, Costa Rica, two places I'd really look at. Here's a really interesting question about real estate investing. Uh, it comes from Brian, and here's what Brian says. Are you really against suburban property? Well, before I go through the rest of it, let's say, no, I have a house in the suburbs right now. I want to sell it and get the hell out of here. So in some ways, I'm against it. In some ways, I'm for it. Here's a really thought-provoking, interesting question here, though. Let's go through it uh, again, again from Brian. I have a comment about the burbs. We both agree that rural property has more, quote, real, unquote, value than urban or suburban property. But as an investment, I think suburban property is a higher-yield, lower-risk investment. There you go. There's where I'm going to key in on when I get done with this question. Higher yield, possibly. Lower risk, no. And I'll explain that when I start answering this. Once the debt is gone and the pantry is full, we'll have disposable paper that we'll need to invest or inflation will eat it away. Okay. Um, I, th I think that investing in a suburban property is much safer than even less volatile stocks and has a higher ROI than bonds and or safe paper instruments. Rural property is the safest investment for sure, but the ROI is often very low, often just above inflation. I don't disagree that developments rise and fall, rarely in that order, but most developments have a 15 to 40 year life cycle. Really? Check those places out in California, bud, where they, they just read about the gated community turning into a slum. 
if we monitor the business supporting the suburbs and the city, policing uh, su- policy supporting the business, we can make very educated decisions about suburban investment. Those who misunderstand me, there are more risks involved in a suburban investment as opposed to a rural investment. But the risk involved in any venture with a fair ROI. I think troubles are from suburban investments stem from individuals that are not using disposable income to make such purchases. Mortgaging 125 to 185% of the value of the property is not an investment. It's asinine. Uh, but if you're mortgaging 40 to 20% of the property's real real-tail value, then you take, uh, take the time to choose a proper neighborhood. I think you have a great mid to long-term investment. Am I wrong? You may not change my mind, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Dark Winter, a.k.a. Brian. All right, here's the deal. You're not wrong. You're just not right. Uh, it, it really depends. on. First of all, if you're going to do it, what what you just described is exactly what I would tell you to do. You find the safest neighborhood with, the, with growing businesses, not established uh, businesses so much as established, but yet still on their, their growth curve up, good quality schools, uh, neighborhoods that are being taken care of and things like that. Make the smartest purchase you can and go equity heavy. I don't know about 40 to 20% for your mortgage. So that means you're, you're tying up 60 to 80% of the capital in, in the uh, property. If I'm going to buy an investment property, I want income out of it. So I want to rent it. Uh, to do that, I'm going to probably go in with 25 to 35% down. So eventually I might be at that 40 to 20% ratio you're talking about, but it's going to be done with somebody else's money, not mine. So that's a long-term investment. That's a 10 to 15-year investment, which is the bottom end of your 15 to 40-year life cycle, at which point at 10 to 15 years you're dumping the property, pulling out the capital gain in it, and reinvesting in a new property somewhere else that's at the bottom end of that curve if you're doing it right as a real estate trader. Can you make money doing that? Yes, but I'm going to go back to something Brian said. I think that investing in suburban property is much safer than even less volatile stocks. And then he also said, I think that suburban property is a higher yield, lower risk investment. And then reality sets in when he's, when he's typing the rest of this. And he says, uh, let me find it real quick. Don't misunderstand me. There are more risks involved in a suburban investment as opposed to a rural investment. So those two terms are completely contradictory, and that's because reality setting in as he's typing this email to me. So here's the deal. If you want to make lots of money, really great urban and suburban properties purchased at a low price, which there is opportunity for right now, properly handled and managed and restored and maintained, do provide great income potential, and there's a lot of millionaires that will attest to that. They also come with tremendous risk. Okay, And it doesn't matter whether you're highly leveraged or lightly leveraged. Let's say you, you buy a $200,000 house, you put $100,000 down, you have 50% equity from day one. The $200,000 house goes down in value to $100,000. Okay, You still owe $100,000 on it, and you have $100,000 tied up into it. What does that mean? That means that you can sell it for $100,000 and walk away with zero. And how many properties got their value cut in half or more during the recent downturn? If I'm right about the false recovery, short term anyway, this is a good time to buy. Long term, I don't. Again, I see that real estate values are just on the beginning of taking their real beating. There's plenty of pockets where it's been salvaged all around the country in suburbia. So the other thing that we have to look at, this is with stocks, houses, anything. Let's say 
that, and let's do it with stocks, and it, it carries over to houses. Let's say that I buy $100,000 worth of a mutual fund, and that mutual fund decreases in value by 50% this year. Because that year, it goes down 50%. How much do I have left? And, and no calculator needed with round numbers. I have $50,000. Now, let's say that next year, it goes right back to where it was. So it goes, let's say it was traded at $50 a share. And so I had, you know, 100,000 shares at a, uh, $1,000 a share and I had a, uh, 100,000 shares, right? So I, just to make the math easy, I don't know what the hell sells for 1000 bucks a share, but you get the point. It went to 500 So now I'm sitting on $50,000 worth of the mutual fund. If it goes right back to where it was, if it goes up 50% in value that next year, how much money do I have? A 50% gain after a 50% loss. $75,000. What? How? Well, see, once it's down to $50,000 worth of the stock, and it gets a 50% gain, what's 50% of 50000 25000 What's 50 plus 25? 75. So if you're holding a stock or a piece of property that drops in value by 50%, and then the market recovers 50%, you lose. You don't break even. Most people don't think about that. With large investments like a house, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, it's a big percentage, isn't it? And that market has to recover one hundred percent to fix a fifty percent loss. Now, if we look at rural property during this crash, what we find is in a lot of places, yeah, it didn't go up much, but in a lot of places it went up. It's more expensive to buy a house in Hot Springs today than it was when I bought my house in Hot Springs in 2004. Values of property, especially outside of the town, all around the town, all out, you know, a couple acres here, a couple acres there, five acres here, it's all gone up in value. It's gone up in value 2 to 3%, but the rest of the United States went down. So there's more risk there, and it requires more management. And what I would tell you is I would rather buy rural property and lease it to a farmer to create cash flow, and know that the underlying investment has more stability and less tax consequences, because they have an agricultural exemption, than tie my money up in a suburban property. Just the way I feel. So, Brian, it's not that you're wrong. It's that if I want to look at the safest play with the greatest underlying real value, then it's rural property. It's rural property that can be farmed. And, as we can see in Detroit, the real value of the land is farming, and when the house values drop down so low that you could buy a house and the land for less than the value of the land, people brought in bulldozers and started growing stuff, even in the city. So that tells you what makes land valuable, is the production capacity. So I would buy land with production capacity. If you want to make kind of the, the, the mutual play, then what you do is you go and you find a major interstate or toll road system being built north, south, east, or west, out of the city. You go about 30 miles past the urban layer, where you get out of suburbia, about 30 miles ahead of the sprawl. You buy rural land there. You farm it. You lease it to a farmer or whatever. And you wait for the sprawl to reach you. And then you sell it to stupid people that want suburbia. 
That's that's the long play. And if it never gets there, if everything falls apart, you still have the underlying urban value or the underlying rural value of the land. That's just the way I see it. It's up to you what you do with your money. As always, I give you my information. You have to formulate your own plan based on your own risk tolerance and what's most important to you in life. The other thing I believe about really big investments is if you don't understand and love the investment, don't do it. Well, I understand and I love rural land. I don't understand and I don't love suburbia. So there you go. Okay, so here's another question. I get a lot on this. I figured it's time for me to say something about it. I don't really have the answers. So it's one that I I can kind of just give you some of my thoughts on and maybe throw a little bit of humor in here for you at some point. We'll see how that works out. Anyway, it says, uh, Hey, Jack, I've read and watched a few news stories about honeybee populations dropping without any explanations. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Some theories in the news stories had to do with cell phone towers or sunspots. I was wondering if all the crops planted with hybrid seeds could have anything to do with it. Also, if the honeybees go away, then are there any good pollinators that can help take place of the bees? Let's talk about what pollinators could help take place of the bees. The answer is there are pollinators other than bees, but trying to allow the entire honeybee population to go away and then replacing it with the other pollinators is kind of like trying to replace your lost girlfriend with a rubber woman. It'll get the job done, but not very well, and it won't last very long if used properly. Um, it just doesn't work, okay? You can't do that. Uh, the, the bee has too big of a place in the biosphere and in the ecosystem. There's a, there's a, a niche that only the bee feels, at, feels adequately. There's pollinating flies. There's pollinating butterflies. There's, of course, other species of bee like bumblebees uh, and mason bees, and there's even some wasps that do quite a bit of uh, pollinating along with their predatory activities. Uh, but we can't really replace the bees. If we lose the bees, we're in deep, deep freaking shit, folks. Again, word you might not want to hear, but there's a, it, it's not we're in trouble. We're in deep shit if we lose the bees. So we need to do something about this. Here's my theories. On the hybrids, yeah and no. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I don't really think that the fact that somebody's growing hybrid tomatoes or hybrid peppers or whatever are hurting the bees. Those types of plants have heirloom or hybrid or open pollinator or not have never really been a major bee forage source. You might see some bees going into your tomato blossoms or on your pepper blossoms from time to time, but most of the tomatoes get a lot of their pollination for pollinating flies. Actually, um, it's not a great flower for the bee. It doesn't have the yield that the bee is really looking for. You see a lot of mason bees on tomato blossoms. I see very few. Uh, bees of any sort on, on pepper blossoms. So that type of hybrid, no. But one thing I noticed at uh, the store when I was looking at some different varieties of sunflower uh, is that a lot of the new, like, special pretty sunflowers uh, have no pollen, which I, I don't even get. Uh, sunflower, of course, being one of the greatest sources of bee forage for pollen and nectar you could ever have, especially the big mammoth sunflowers. So if you want to help the bees, folks, plant a few sunflowers, the big ones. Uh, and when I had my big sunflowers going last year with the bees growing up around them, man, we had, uh, it was just huge amounts of bees swarming those nonstop from bloom until they you know, kind of dried out. So I guess there could be some of that. My belief is that it's a combination of uh, some viruses and some uh, funguses that are basically running in little epidemics and pandemics among the bee population. I've talked about pandemic and epidemic before. I, I've said that 
it is not um, it, it's it's not just the human race that we have to worry about experiencing pandemic. If the bees have a global high mortality pandemic, which they kind of sort of are right now, but they're holding out. But if we ever got to a point where uh, the bees actually got wiped out or wiped down to five percent of their you know previous population that it could have a huge effect on our ability to feed ourselves because we will rely on their pollination activity so much. Um, here's a little article from the Northampton Chronicle. It's kind of short, so I'll just read it to you. And they basically say what I say, and they give you some other thoughts on it. It says, uh, Busy bees from the Northampton Federation of Women's Institute are backing a campaign to raise awareness about the plight of the honeybee. Uh, Wiz across the country may, has made a resolution to take part. Uh, Wiz is the Women's Institute, okay. Across the part in uh, a campaign entitled SOS for Honeybees to raise awareness of the insects that are vital to helping create about a third of the food that makes up the human diet. I want to read that to you again. They're vital in helping to create about a third of the food that makes up the human diet. A third of what you eat and a third of what your brothers and sisters all around the world eat comes from that humble honeybee. As I said, can you replace it? Yes, but right, it won't really get the job done. Uh, part of the drive includes urging people around Northampton to be more aware about planting bee-friendly plants in their garden. By the way, as I'm reading this book, this is Northampton in England, I believe, that this uh, chronicle's from, but it's still good uh, information. Um, part of the drive includes urging people around Northampton to be more aware about planting bee-friendly plants in their gardens. They will be holding a plant swap. Instead of a seed swap, they're going to swap plants. On sun, Saturday, May 15th, at uh, this place, doesn't really matter, I guess, uh, where the bee ambassador has recently been to a conference about the endangered insect, so there's no single one factor curing the bees. The Varro virus did a lot of at the start, but there are other factors. There are fungi which affect them, but there is also the lack of plants producing the right nectar. We just don't understand everything that is killing them. We're trying to make people aware that they need to have the right plants in their gardens. We get so much from bees, we owe it to them to give back as much as we can. Barbara Brentley, Vice Chairman of the Northampton County Federation of Wiz, what a name, uh, <laughs> really, I couldn't do better than that. Anyway, we, we really want to raise awareness about the, this problem and get people thinking about the plants they plant, as many, as many plants have no pollen. So I'll leave it with that. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. But here's my point. I think suburbia and our plantings have done more to harm the honeybees than agriculture. Uh, bees don't, and we've been growing mostly corn and wheat and barley and stuff like that and soybean for a long time, long before there was a honeybee problem. And honeybees don't pollinate that stuff and they don't visit that stuff, so that's not, you know, people said because it would be GMOs and GMO corn, I, I don't see that really hurting the honeybee other than it allows, some of these things allow greater use of herbicides, which are killing off a lot of the weeds, which had a lot of flowers and pollen that the bees could use. So there could be some of that. But we've gone to this, this, this concept in suburbia where we want everything clean, clean, straight lines, and nice. And, you know, we don't plant those old cottage roses anymore. We don't plant sunflower seeds because uh, they fall off and we get leaves and stuff everywhere. And it looks like a jungle. Whereas, uh, you know, even 20 years ago, much of suburbia had more of this... Uh, almost a little forest look to it, that people were bigger into mass plantings and things like that. So I think if you want to help the bees, plant stuff that they can use. Uh, so if you, the problem with that is you go and you look at a lot of the really pretty flowers that we have today, and they don't produce a lot of pollen, they don't produce a lot of nectar. And people do that because they're worried about you know sneezing or whatever as well, and, and things like that. But if we plant things like honeysuckle, 
Uh, and uh, blue salvia is a sage that grows these amazing uh, flowers. It's a perennial. It comes back year after year after year. Uh, bees love that stuff. There's just a tremendous amount. Flowers with, with large... Um, uh, you know, large stigmas that, that have an awful lot of surface area to be mined uh, by, by the bees are, are what we need. And if we'll plant more things like that, I think we'll help turn this around. I think there's also some commercial crops that would do a lot to help. I think if more Americans were not so worried about, you know, there's another thing you look at. At one time, American lawns were full of clover. Clover and grass growing together. It's a perfect lawn system. The clover was a legume like a bean and it provided nitrogen to the soil. So we didn't have to fertilize our gardens. The clover was very aggressive and crawling, but the grass could grow up in between it. So we had this beautiful mat of clover and grass growing together over much of America. Of course, if you didn't cut your grass every single week, if you let it grow for two weeks, all through the summer, the clover would get these beautiful little white flowers on it. Eventually, you'd go, it's time to cut the grass. But all the time that the clover was in bloom, it was great forage for the bees. Well, that's gone. Uh, there's a lot of things we could do. I think there's a tree in Australia called leatherwood that has amazing yields for beekeepers down there. We could start planting some of the leatherwood around here, and it has, again, amazing yields uh, through a major part of the summer. So there's a lot of things that we can do, but it all comes down to better habitat, better forage. And, yes, there are some uh, substitutes that we can encourage. Again, bumblebees and mason bees are probably two of the best that kind of fill that same niche. But overall, without the bees, we're in real trouble, folks. So it is something to keep an eye on, and it's a good reason to maybe take up beekeeping as a hobby and have a hive or two of your own and plant some more forage. Let's go on to another question. This is an article uh, that was sent to me called Strategic Default, Walking Away from Mortgages. I've talked about this before. I'm not going to beat it up today, um, but I do want to make sure that when I say things like, you know, when you agree to pay a mortgage, you're supposed to pay it, and there's honor in the equation, and you can't just give the house back like returning jeans to Walmart. But there is a point where you, you reach where you go, I, I can't pay, or I could pay, but I can never get ahead. The, the, my neighborhood's been destroyed. There's a point where you might have to walk away, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. I'm going to read a little piece of this article. You can read the entire article if you want. There's a video on it. The article's like four pages. So I just want, this guy's doing it right, all right? Let, let me just read these few paragraphs for you. West Foothill Drive has become a street of shattered dreams. Amazingly, 16 out of 44 houses on the street have been foreclosed on over the last year. Diener told 60 Minutes correspondent Morley Safer. Uh, Diener says his own home will become number 17 on the foreclosure list. When Diener, an auditor for a local university, uh, bought his three-bedroom house in 2006 for $263,000, uh, he thought he got a bargain. You know, the first-time home buyer, we don't know about houses. Uh, we don't know that houses are overvalued. Maybe you should do some research. Uh, we just know that we need to get in before it keeps going up, up, and up, he explained. But then the balloon burst. So how much money does he think he could get for his $260,000 house today? Right now, about $140,000, Diener said. Big drop over 43%. Diener and his house were, as they say, underwater with a mortgage of about a quarter of a million dollars on a home worth less than $150,000. He has one very expensive lemon. He says he tried to talk to his bank in renegotiating his mortgage, but because he earns enough to keep paying, the bank said no deal. They refused to. They said it was going to affect my credit and they were going to take my house. And I pretty much said, go for it, Diener told Safer. Diener said he could afford to stay in the home, but he chose not to. He's walking away. That lemon of a house is now the bank's problem. It's almost the end thing to do right now, it seems like, he said. This is where I start the like, come on. 
Uh, and because Diener, like many Americans, only made 10% down payment on his home, taking a hike is a lot easier. By law in Arizona and nine other states, the bank can't go after any of his other assets. But his credit rating will suffer. Aren't you fearful that you're going to get a reputation as being a deadbeat, Safer asked. Yeah, but with the money savings I'll be able to have in four to six years, I'm confident I'll have the money to buy my way into a house if I want to, he replied. Asked if he doesn't feel even a twinge of guilt, Diener told Safer, no, especially after dealing with my lender, trying to contact them. None at all. Now, here's the thing. When I talk about people who have no honor and break their word and just walk away from a house, I'm not talking about this guy. This guy tried to negotiate. He was above board, told the bank what he was doing, and eventually said, this house is not worth anything close to what I paid for it. I can't do this, and if I keep putting money into this pit, ten years from now I'm going to be in the same exact place. Now, I don't necessarily think he would be. I don't think he made the smartest decision for himself here because if he's in a decent area, especially in Arizona, there's a potential for that property to come back in value and for him to be able to leave it a little bit better of a way. But I can't argue with the way he did things. If you call your bank and you do everything you can to work a deal out with them and they won't even deal with you, and they say, well, we'll take your house and your credit will be screwed, and you say, fine, and you walk away and you have that communication I don't think you're dishonorable. Again, it may not be the smartest decision, and in some cases it may be the smartest decision. Maybe we're down to a business decision. Just like the business earlier. Hey, I'll pay the fine versus paying for the health insurance. You set up a safety net, I'll throw my people into it. Right? Maybe it's not the most ethical thing, but maybe it's the best business decision. Well, I can't fault the guy for that. What I've always said is the guy that strings the bank along for three to six months not making payments, saying, yeah, I'll get a payment into you. And the whole time he's just bankrolling the money he could be paying them and then using that to move somewhere else and dragging every single thing out of the house he can down to the carpeting, destroying the house on the way out. That's a dishonorable piece of crap. And if that's you, you're a dishonorable piece of crap. If you're this guy, you're an honorable American that did the best you could and worked under the terms of your contract and under the law. Uh, and there's some other people in here that fit that. I haven't read the whole article, so maybe we'll find some people that fit the second part. But walking away from a mortgage doesn't make you evil, bad, or wrong. Using the fact that you have a mortgage and abusing it and then just saying it doesn't matter and having no concern whatsoever for doing the right thing on the way out, that makes you pretty bad as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we'll see if we can fit a few more things in before we wrap up today. This one came in yesterday. I just have to answer it really quick because... It shows a lack of understanding. He says, hi, Jack. Uh, when it comes to investing in the market, do you believe in dollar cost averaging or buy and hold strategy? Or do you believe that when you hear the market will go down, uh, parentheses, fall of 08, unquote, uh, to dump most, if not everything, and convert to cash? I know you aren't the doom and gloom type, so the second option, dump it, seems kind of like doom and gloom. We're all going to die type of thing. What do you suggest and why? Thanks, GIF. Well, as I answered GIF by email directly yesterday, I involved dump it. It's not gloom and doom to dump it. And if you were listening to this show in July and August of 2008, what did I tell you to do? Dump it all, convert it to cash, hold it and wait. Right? That's not gloom and doom. Because that was a mountain crash coming that anybody who would pull their head out of their ass for more than five seconds could see coming. Now, there's people that are always saying dump it. That's not me. There's a time to hold things. There's a time to buy things. And there's a time to sell things. 
Right now, I'm very unsure about the market. So my, I can only tell you my personal investment strategy right now. We're in the safest, most conservative investments we can be in as far as paper investments go, with some capital allocated to buy some stocks with some high up-end potential. They're doing very well based on when we purchased them at the bottom of the market, which I didn't call perfectly, but I called pretty close in that February uh, 09 time frame. And we're looking at maybe it's time to get rid of some of those and go safe even with that money. Uh, I am not comfortable just buying into the market. I have forecasted a false recovery. I don't like mutual funds because mutual fund uh, managers can't sell your stock for you. If you're in a mid-cap fund, they have to hold mid-cap stock all the way down to the ground. Dollar cost averaging is a complete scam because it, it just means throwing more money at things. So if you dollar cost averaged right through the crash, you might have got some good buys, but how much money did you lose? Remember what I said earlier today. You're holding $100,000, the stock drops in value by 50%, it goes back up by 50%, you've lost $25,000 or 25% on a 50% loss and 50% gain. Because when it goes back up at 50%, it's 50% of a smaller number. Dollar cost averaging kind of works the same way. You just keep throwing money at it and everything will be okay. It, it, it puts you into an autopilot mode, takes away your responsibility. Now, does that mean that every time I see any little potential drop in the market, I'm dumping all my stock? No. But this time, yeah. Yeah. And if I had listened to my own advice in 1999-2000, I would have bailed before that one. But I listened to the advice of experts back then, and I made a pledge to myself. Never, 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 ever again. That when it's big, when it's bad, when there's a looming crisis, get out. What's the worst that could happen? What is the worst that could happen if you get out? You end up being wrong. The crisis isn't bad as it said, as they said it was. And instead of the market dropping 50 points, it drops 10. And you saved a 10% loss. What's the, I mean, you want to go the worst? Uh, the crisis wasn't really a crisis. The stock market goes up 10 points. You lost a 10% gain. Well, if you went into a safe investment with a guaranteed 3% return, you lost 7% of a gain, but you didn't lose anything of your underlying principle. It's up to you. What's more important to you, hedging against major financial loss or sticking your neck all the way out and just hoping everything will be okay? Yes, when I see a big crash coming now, I dump everything. And until I see signs of sustained recovery, I stay out of most things. And I keep a large portion out, even if I'm putting some in. And then when I see sustained recovery possible, I'll put money in. And when I see all-time highs, I get out. I get out. Your financial advisor will lie to you. What he'll do is he'll show you this chart about how every time the market plunged, right after it plunged, it had some of the greatest gains in history. That only matters if you were holding cash during the drop and bought stock during the drop. If you were holding stock during the drop and you held stock on the rise, again, it doesn't matter. It doesn't help you. The best thing that happens, it goes back to what it was, and you're right back where you started. And the loss becomes, but if you don't sell, and it drops again, you're back underwater again. It's not trading. Trading is people that sell every day or every month at least. But it is after a two-year cycle of a great ramp up, and the Dow's at 14,000 points, and everybody's playing bands, and saying it'll never end, and people are starting to point at all the little problems underneath, you go, you know what, I made my profits, I'm going to take my profits, I'm going to wait. Because it's going to come. And here's what I defy you to do. Find me a point where the market reached an all-time high and didn't drop well below it within 24 to 36 months or less after that. Find me any point. Go do it. 
Good luck. All right, let's go on to the last question of the day. Um, it's actually a deep question, so I'm just going to give it a mile-high view, and maybe we'll do this as a show again. Um, but it says, how do I start a bug-out location? I have land with water, fishing, hunting, and gardening. It's about three hours from a major city. Well, you have a bug-out location. It's rough. You probably need to go to a structure next. If you, if you don't have the funds to build a house, uh, I would, if it's possible, to get electricity in there from the grid. Go ahead and pay to have that done. And put in at least something like uh, a low-cost uh, RV mobile home. Uh, the big things you need with um, a bug-out location, though, are security uh, when you're not there. And obviously, you won't be there most of the time. So security means everything's underground, hidden from view, and there's very little sign of life there. Or you have a trusted neighbor with a line-of-sight view to your property. And those are the only two forms of security that exist. No matter how remote you are, if you have stuff that's visible, sooner or later, later two-legged giant 180-pound rats will find your stuff, steal it, and destroy it. And it will happen. So if you're going to have that bug allocation out in a place like that, either basically you're doing the underground bunker thing until you can live there. Um, and you're, and you still have that risk, but you can make things as secure and as, uh, invisible as possible. Fence it and post it. Um, and if you fence and post property and, uh, you don't have any signs of any activity going on there, most people will think that that property's hunting property and figure it's probably not worth risking their neck over to go on to. Um, and then, you know, I would look at, if you, if you don't have a line of sight neighbor, get that small RV that you can tow with one of your vehicles and keep it somewhere else. Don't keep it on property so that you can either take it with you or pick it up en route. Um, plan that bug out location like that for the most probable bug outs, which means you've lost your home, you've lost your job, you have to go live off grid for a while, whatever it is. Um, but that's as deep as I can go into that question today. But it's a good question. Maybe we'll do setting up the bug out location as a show tomorrow. If you'd like to hear that, send me an email, jacketsurvivalpodcast.com. Let me know you'd like to hear that topic. Because we've kind of done it before, but never really done it as setting it up. So if you'd like to hear that, let me know, and I'll put that into my uh, my uh, bean shaker of a head and decide whether or not I want to do that tomorrow. And with that, I am going to wrap up. I want to remind you again, we talked about a lot of bad things today, a lot of good things today. It always comes down to you, my friends. We talked about things like investing, and we investing in silver, investing in, in gold, investing in uh, rural property, investing in uh, you know growing things in your backyard. We've talked about a ton of things that you can do today. Some of them may be things that you think fit your life, and some of those things you may think Jack is crazy. Take the ones that fit your life, make them your own, and do them. Take action. And if I say to do something, you go, I don't want to do that, don't do it. It's okay. But do something. Make your life go a little bit further toward independence and freedom and self-sufficiency every day. Just a little bit. 1% closer. 1% closer for five years will put you into complete and total independence. In fact, it won't even take that long if you did 1%, a half a percent, a quarter of a percent, just a little bit, just a little something every day so that you can look and go, there's one less thing that I need, there's one less thing that I'm dependent upon, there's one less person that I need in my life to make my life okay, there's one less reason for me to continue a job that I hate, there's one less reason for me to continue to throw money into a hole that never seems to close. There's one more thing toward if everything falls apart, I'll be okay. And it's one more thing toward if nothing falls apart, I'll be better off than that. Do that, you'll find yourself well along your journey in the not-so-distant future. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. How will you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough? Or even if they don't.
gets spent. 